Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. <laughs> The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over a 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire. Huh? Ah. Oh. Sorry, we were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Forward, 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 the Book of Luke, Chapter 15. In our study of the parables, we are finding out what the kingdom of God is like. The past studies have all began with the kingdom of God is like, comparing that which we cannot understand or have no point of reference to understand with things that we do have points of reference to understand, like planting seed, how seed grows, about... um, Uh, different kinds of soil, and the Lord is teaching us what the kingdom of God is like. Now, again, where is the kingdom of God, and when does it come? The kingdom of God is not meat or drink, but it's what? Righteousness, peace, joy in what? In the Holy Ghost. The kingdom of God is in the Holy Ghost. When does the kingdom of God come about? When you're born again. And the king takes up residence within your spirit. The kingdom of God is in the Holy Spirit. Now, I don't say that's all, and the kingdom of God is, of course, going to be manifested, as the Scripture tells us, but it tells us so little about what it will be. It spends all of its time telling us what it is now. And don't get caught up in what is going to be, maybe, possibly. It takes all you can handle to pay attention to what's right now. It's not what you don't know that will give you any problem. It's what you do know that's going to give you difficulty. So turn your attention on the now. This pie in the sky by and by is all right, but as June Farrell says, I want fish on the dish right now. Revelation is a book of worship. I never forget that. It's many other things, but it is primarily a book of worship, and it is a book that says things are not what they appear to be, Look at things from God's eyes, not from your point. See them as God sees them and rejoice. Everything is all right. Everything is on schedule. God is in control. Now, if you can get anything else out of there, that's wonderful. But get that. Everything is as God is ordering it. Everything's all right. Now, the the book of Luke, in chapter 15, we're going to look at three of the parables of the Lord today. I love the way the Lord teaches. You see, this is his preaching. This is his preaching to the people with the vast throngs and multitudes that gathered to hear him. They said that never a man spake as this man spake. They said that out of his lips came gracious words. They said that the people hung on his every word. Now his enemies stood about trying to trip him and to catch him. 
and to find him in error. But the people flocked to hear the gracious words that came from his mouth. And they said, where did this man get his learning and his education? How does he know these things? Now, these three parables I have entitled the lost parables. These three are about the lost things. We have lost sheep, we have lost coins, and we have a lost son. And these parables have been taught and, and preached over, and there have been many gracious words to come out explaining these parables down through the centuries. But in my study of them, I have to look at it from a point of view that God has shown me that is different from what I've always been taught. These parables are not primarily about what was lost. These parables are about the owner of what was lost. Now, in the first instance, it's the lost sheep. But the parable is not about the sheep. The parable is about the shepherd who had a lost sheep. The second parable is about a lost coin, but it is not about the coin. The subject of matter is the woman who lost the coin. The third parable is the lost son. We call him the prodigal son. It is not primarily about the son who was lost. The parable puts his emphasis on the father who lost the son. So I would like for you to consider this morning these parables from this point of view. These parables are going to teach us not something about what was lost, though we will learn some things, but the thrust of these parables concerns itself with the character of the one who had lost this sheep, this coin, and this son. So we're going to focus our attention on the one who had lost something and find out what the kingdom of God is like. Now, in the first one is the parable of the lost sheep. Once again, you'll see in verse 1, it says all the tax collectors and sinners were coming to hear him. Jesus was caught in bad company. Uh, he was always slumming, you understand. Uh, the religious leaders would have nothing to do with these people. They were considered to be unclean. They were many of them ceremonially unclean. Others were of such lesser degree in position that they couldn't be bothered with them. But Jesus was the most peculiar thing. He always was found among men of ill repute. They seemed to gravitate toward him, and he habitually was in the wrong kind of company. Habitually. And these people gathered to him to hear those gracious words. It seems that Jesus, at one time when he was talking, was being upbraided for his choice of company. And he said, they said, you've got a devil. That's what your problem is. You've just got a devil. And he said, you know, said, you people are so peculiar. You can't be pleased. You just can't be pleased. He said, now John came, my cousin, old rough, hairy thing, no cooth about him whatsoever, so plain speaking. He came, and he was very astute in his living. He didn't go and gather with the party group or anything and kept to himself and fasted. And You said, um, he's got a demon. And then I come along, and I'm a social creature. I go to the parties, and I like to be entertained, and I get myself in company with people where I can share. And you say that I'm a glutton and a wine-bibber. What do you folks want? 
I mean, what's going to make you happy? You're like people that say, we played a tune and you didn't dance to our tune. Or you're like people that say, we don't like the way you do it. Poor us. You know, we're like that a lot. We say, Lord, I just don't like those people. I don't like the way you're doing things over there, Lord. I really wish you'd straighten up your act. Why on earth, Lord, don't you do something about my husband? I can't hardly bear him, Lord. I mean, my righteousness just causes me to just twitch every time I get in his filthy presence. Lord, because I'm so right, do something for me. I know you can put up with it, but my standards are so much higher than yours, Lord. Watch those things. It says the Pharisees and the scribes, both of them, they begin to grumble. And they said, this man receives sinners. And then it says he told them the parable. The reason he is telling these three parables is because they begin to grumble about the kind of company he kept. The kind of people that he permitted himself to be friendly with. And so, because of their lack of the knowledge of what God is like, he told them these three stories comparing their uh, uh, circumstances, everyday circumstances, in order that they might understand something of the character of God. The first one that he spoke was of the lost sheep. Now, you know the story of the lost sheep. This fellow has a hundred sheep. Now, right off the bat, we know who this parable is about. It says, what man among you if he has a hundred sheep? Now, who is, we're going to learn about God, and he's a man, this is Jesus. He is the good shepherd. He has a hundred sheep. Right off the bat, he tells us who he's talking about and what kind of work, uh, line of work he's in. He's a shepherd. This is Jesus, the man Christ Jesus, fully man and fully God, and he has a hundred sheep, and he's one of them is lost. He said, if you've lost one, will you not leave the ninety and nine in the open pasture and go after the one which is lost until you find it? Now, I've told you this before, but for the sake of the teaching, I'll mention it again. We've heard so many sermons about the poor little sheepy who is bleeding out on the bleak and barren hillside and calling, and the shepherd with his ninety and nine safe in the fold says, poor little sheep, bless his heart. You shouldn't have wandered off. You wouldn't have got lost. But bless his heart. I'll go get him. And we have been told that the compassions of the shepherd were kindled because of the bleeding of the lost sheep. And so he went out to find him. Not so. You have to understand an oriental shepherd. A Near Eastern shepherd is, if anything, he is not sensitive or, or pulsating with sentiment at all. He had an investment in the sheep. You have to understand, friends, this was his sheep. It belongs to him. He was not motivated by the sheep's situation. His motivation said, that's my sheep. And so it is, the Lord Jesus came for his lost sheep, not because of our pitiful condition, but because he said, that's my creation. I will have my people. Do you think for one minute that the devil snuck up and robbed out of God's hand what belongs to him? Don't be ridiculous. The devil is God's devil. Never forget, he's got him on a leash. Oh, yes, he's an enemy, but he is a leashed enemy. He can only do what he's permitted to do. Amen. Understand that. But the sheep belong to the, the shepherd, and the Lord said, I'll go get what belongs to me. I will have what belongs to me. God is not thwarted so easily. He sees what is his, and he goes after it. It belongs to him. Now, in this story... 
the shepherd is motivated by the fact that that sheep belongs to him and he's got an investment in it and he will have what belongs to him. So turn your attention away from the sheep in this shepherd, in this uh, parable. Other places we'll look at the sheep, but in this one we are looking at the shepherd. Now this is the parable of the son. These three parables are going to teach us the work of the Godhead. The work of the Godhead, it is a descriptive chapter of the Godhead at work in the universe. And this particular parable is descriptive of the work of the Son. Jesus is the man. He is the one who owned the sheep, for the Scripture says that he created everything. Nothing was created except it was created by him. And he went to procure for himself what belonged to him. He lost the sheep, and the work in bringing the sheep back was not so much for the benefit of the sheep, though of course the sheep benefited, it was for his benefit. Will you understand me if I say that the work of the cross, the death of Jesus on the cross, was first for God before it was for man? For God's holiness had been insulted. His holiness had been attacked. And he was retrieving back for himself the only just method that it could be done, that which belonged to him, his creation, man. So the death of Jesus was first for God's benefit, second for our benefit. His holiness was vindicated. His wrath was rightfully poured out on Jesus Christ who was declared to be sin and his holiness was vindicated rightly and justly. For God cannot brush sin under the carpet and look over it. For that would not be just. Sin must be paid for, and it must be paid for justly. So God became man and poured out upon Jesus Christ the just measure of his holy, beautiful, adorable, right wrath and brought back to himself what Adam so loosely slipped into the dominion of the devil. God has justified himself. It's right. Now, he didn't have to do it. He would have been as much God had he not done it as he was before he did it. But he had satisfied his holiness and satisfied his justice and in doing so had poured out his mercy and his love on mankind. The cross is where the love of God and the wrath of God meet in one beautiful flame of fire. It's the glory of all time. Evelyn and I were talking this morning. You never, ever get away from the cross. It's the beauty of our God. It is the glory of His holy majesty. It is that which is the wisdom and the power of God. The preaching of the cross. What happened there will be the center of all of the eternities of eternities will revolve around what happened on that cross when Jesus became legally declared sin in order that we might be legally declared righteous. This parable tells us about the Lord Jesus and his concern for the sheep. Now, you understand in this parable... We aren't so much concerned with the condition of the sheep, though it's obvious he's lost, as we are concerned with the actions of the shepherd. Don't look at the sheep here. You can look at the sheep, but look at the shepherd. See him. 
leaving those that are secure to go out and receive to himself what belongs to him. Now, one thing about the sheep being lost, you know, sin has made man lose his way. We are, we are lost, we call ourselves. Well, what does it mean to be lost anyway? To be lost means you don't know where you are. And you don't know how to get any place from there. You've lost your points of reference. Everything is strange to you. You, you don't know where, where you are. You have no familiar point. You're there, but you don't know how you got there. And you aren't sure how to get away from there. And you don't know why you're there. And, excuse me? Most of us think we born the department store says, my mama's lost. That's right. My mama's lost. But it's we that are lost. Now, that's a good point. You can't get a man saved until you get him lost. Remember that. And we have preached such an easy believism that we haven't first let man come under the revelation that he's a lost and undone creature with no hope in the world. No hope. And until you get a good look at your condition, you'll have no point of reference to appreciate the offering of God in salvation through Jesus. And so the old Puritans that I love so deeply, they spent a lot of time on a person coming to repentance. They wanted you to know you were lost. They wanted you to know that you were doomed. They wanted you to know that you had no hope in the world. And then when they held out the promise of the Father, you gladly reached on to it. The reason people turn from salvation is because they refuse to see that they're lost. Now when you go into, I'm told when you go into other countries and people hear the gospel for the first time, it breaks in on them because the devil doesn't have the right to blind them anymore. And they say, yes. But here in America, you can preach the sweet old truths, and because America has chosen to be blind, she does not see. And her blindness is worse than the blindness of some heathen in some, some far remote place. Because can you imagine what it would take to choose to be blind? Suppose you decided today you would be blind. You did not see. To choose not to see, first of all, takes effort, takes concentration. But eventually you would become blind. You would lose the use of the organ of the eye. And then you would truly be blind. The Lord said of the Jewish nation, this people have ears, but they hear not. Noses, but they, and ears, but they hear not. And eyes, but they see not. They had chosen to be blind and they became their choice. And so it is with America. We have chosen to be blind. And our blindness is so wretched. Bad enough for a man to be blind by birth or by accident. But someone who deliberately chooses to be blind and thus loses the use of their eyes, that's despicable. You can't even feel sorry for somebody like that. That's sad. I mean, that's pitiful. That's bad. But that's the condition. A person has to know that they are lost. Now, when Adam sinned, he knew that he was there, but he forgot why. The whole world says, where am I going? What is the purpose in life? What can I do? Only the church says, we started there, we're going here, and we're going to wind up over there. Everybody else says, it's vanity, it's vanity, it's nothing. If you look at modern art, you see it's nothing but nothing. It's, it's vanity. It has no purpose. It's no meaning to it. If you watch a show on television, they don't quit. They just end. I mean, they don't end, they just quit. I said it backwards. <laughs> Sorry. I mean, you know, it's, it's futility, futility. Uh, uh, I sat down with my, uh, my family's been watching, we watched the last episode of that television show, MASH. 
And uh, we've laughed a lot about that. And, and so my daughter and Mama uh, said, Mama, come sit down and watch it with me. So I had stuff to do, but I went and sat down and watched a few minutes and got up and did what I was doing. Come on, Mama, come on, sit down and watch it with us. So I went and sat down a few more minutes. And I finally said, good, not above. This is the most depressing thing I've ever seen in my life. It's just, whew. I mean, it doesn't have a, I want the good guy to get the girl and the bad guy to get shot. If I'm going to watch something, I want it to wind up good. I mean, it was just depressing. Everybody goes bananas and, and that's the world's view of reality. There's no, there's no point. There's no, no hope, no anchor, no point of relationship. They're just wandering. It's futility, futility. And everything you see comes to that point. Nothingness, emptiness. Vanity of vanities. All is vanity. It's only through the knowledge of the finished work of Jesus that there is any purpose. You have to know what God's intent for the world is. And so this shepherd left the rest of the sheep and went to seek the one that was lost. You'll notice in verse 5 it said he found it and he laid it on his shoulders. Now I love that. A Near Eastern mama carries her baby on her back in a sling of one of her robes right there on her shoulders. And baby sees the world peeking over mama's shoulders. Takes a nap. It's not ever too far from food. All she got to do is just sling it around to the front. There's dinner all served up. The baby snoozes, listening to mama's heartbeat. The rhythm of her work cycle during the day eases the baby to rest. It sleeps and it wakes and it never does feel alone or, because mama's right there. When she has to work in the field, she'll take that little sling off her shoulders and put two sticks up together and hang that thing between the sling. And there the baby will swing under the shade tree while mama works. She'll take a corner of the flap of her robe and lay it over the baby's face so the flies won't get on it or the sun won't get it. This is the picture here. The shepherd found the sheep and he didn't run him home with a stick in his hand. He picked him up and laid him on his shoulders and carried him back home. Now God does that. You don't find God, he finds you. And you don't come back to God, he brings you back to himself. He said, while you are seeking me, I will be found. And our God lays us on his shoulder and brings us back. It's easy to come back to God. He did all the work. Everything that God requires for a person to come to him, he provides himself. He does all the work. He carries us on his shoulder. Remember it says that there was one that the key of David was given to him and he carried it on his shoulder. That's Jesus. Carried it on his shoulder. It's the place of bearing the burden. It's the place where the strength is concentrated. And what you carry on your shoulder, your strength is concentrated there. And the very strength of our God has brought us back into fellowship with him. Not only does he bring the lamb back, but he brings it back rejoicing. He throws a party. And he invites everybody in. And this shows us not only God who owns creation, God who we are, the God who went to find us himself because of himself, not because he felt sorry for us, but because of who he is, he came to seek us. The God that found us, that lifted us up and placed us on his shoulders and brought us back home, but he's the God who rejoices and he's the life of the party that he throws to celebrate, I've got my sheep back. I went and got my sheep. I knew where my sheep was. I found it. I laid it on my shoulders. I brought it back. Now, y'all come in. We're having a party. We see a picture of God, the rejoicing one, who dances and twirls at the party he throws because his sheep has been found. You would think the sheep would gather all the rest of the sheep in and throw a big party. Hallelujah, I've been found. But no, it's God that throws the party and says, 
I have found my sheep. And it says, in the same way, there will be a party in heaven. A real blowout in heaven. A wing-ding. They will make the chandeliers ruffle in glory. I have found my sheep. When one comes to salvation, there's a party thrown in glory. And Isaiah, dosy does Elijah around, and they say, Glory, another one in. Hallelujah. David writes a new psalm. Abraham says, Oh, it's all because of the seed. My seed that was promised has brought another one in. They throw a big party. Now, the next parable, isn't that good? The next parable is the lost coin. Now, this parable... Remember, these three parables are teaching us about the work of the Godhead. The first one taught us about the work of the Son. This one teaches us of the work of the Holy Spirit. I love it. Anytime there is the work of the Holy Spirit, and I say anytime, in many occasions, it will be a woman. Because you know the Holy Spirit is that mother part of God. The Holy Spirit does all those mama things. He is the one con- concerned with birth. He brings you, must be born of the Spirit brings you into birth. He's the one that teaches you and that corrects you, that instructs you, that comforts you, that bandages your skinned knees, that pats you on the back and says, it's all right, it's all right, there, there, that blows your nose and wipes your eyes and says, you're just like your daddy. That's the Holy Spirit. He is that mama aspect of God. Now, this is a woman that lost a coin. Now, you talk about a commotion. The fact that this coin was lost caused a big commotion in her household. And the fact that that which belongs to God, you're his coinage, you're his coin, you were lost, it caused a big rucus in heaven. I mean, the dust began to fly. What how when Adam denied God and, tried to, and became his own God by his disobedience, it caused a big upset in glory. Now, God didn't just start things and turn and wind us up and sit back and see how we're going to turn out. God says, it shall be, it will be, I will. And the Lord who has decreed that certain things will be got out his celestial broom and began to sweep in the kingdom. He said, I will do a work. I will send a seed. I will redeem back mine. I will find my coin. And the one who created everything sets out to find what he's created. You notice it says she lights a lamp. Now, this is an emergency here. She's not going to wait till in the morning to hunt this thing. This is an emergency. She's lost a coin. She wants to find it right now. She can't wait. It was her coin. She wasn't motivated by pity for the poor old coin. She could care less how the coin felt. At this point in time, she wanted a coin. It was hers. Now, a woman was married and wore her dowry sewn into her clothing across her forehead. And it was her insurance money. Now, when she got, went into the marriage, her husband didn't get it. It was hers. Anything happened, this was what she fell back on. If her husband died, this is one thing she had. It was her, her dowry money. And it was, you'll see Bedouin women today wearing rows of coins across their forehead or down their t- shawl. And it was valuable to her. It belonged to her. She'd bore a hole in it and stitch it up there and it would dingle and dangle and sparkle. And everywhere she'd go, it would say, look what I'm worth. See how beautiful I am? It was her adornment. It says, you see, I am a person of substance. I am a person of importance. You see this? This belongs to me. You see how much I am loved? You see how lovely I am? It enhanced her whole being and it comforted her as she heard the tinkle of it as she moved her head. 
This woman lost one of those precious coins and there was no more where those came from. There was no more. And she lost one. And she, it was a huge emergency. She got up and lit the lamp. She began to sweep and to try to find her coin. Now she didn't say, well, bless that little coiny's heart. Come on, little coiny, out, out, wherever you are. Of course not. That's ludicrous. The attention here is on the woman. It was her character that motivated her to find that coin because it was important to her. She wanted it. She wanted it back. Now, she got busy to house clean. I want you to know, friends, that love cannot rest until every sheep is in the fold and until every coin is twinkling in the light of his presence. We are the adornment of our God. Do you know the scripture says that we are his inheritance? Can you believe that? Turn, if you will, to Ephesians. Just look at that. It's too good to talk about without looking at it. The book of Ephesians says that we are his inheritance. What is an inheritance? It's something of great value, something of worth, something that has been brought to you at the expense of the life of another. It's that which reminds you of heritage, of family. It gives you content. It gives you meaning. It's purpose. Bless you. In Ephesians, the first chapter, Paul is praying for the uh, Ephesians. He's not asking that God do anything for them. He's asking that the Lord open their eyes to see what they already have. He says, I pray, in verse 18, that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened so that you may know what is the hope of his calling. What are the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints? And what is the surpassing greatness of his power toward us who believe? The riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints. We the saints are his inheritance. We are the twinkle, the tinkle that he hears. We are the comfort of his heart. We are himself, for we are his body. He being the head and we are the body. So God, the Holy Spirit, now only a woman would be that interested. It was her adornment, was her jewelry. It's a feminine thing we're dealing with here. She panicked. She said, I lost my coin. I lost my coin. Light the lamp. Where's my broom? Move the table and chairs. We're going to find it. No, nobody goes to bed until this coin is found. I mean, it's an emergency here. Isn't that like a woman? I'll wait till in the morning. I want it and I want it now. You ever felt like that? I want it right now. This is important. She got up. She lit the light. Now the Lord has lighted the revelation of himself within our heart by the flame of the Holy Ghost and the oil that keeps it burning. And he has searched out in the darkened hearts of men. And he has come with the light and revealed himself. The scripture says, No man comes to the Father except the Spirit draw him. And the Holy Spirit has come with the light of the presence of God and revealed himself to you. And has said, See? And suddenly you could see where you were. My goodness, I've rolled down. I'm under the table. Everything's all back to front. I mean, it's all whomper-jawed, as we say in Arkansas. Everything's mixed up. I thought I was the center of the universe. But I'm not. God is the center of the universe. My life is lopsided. I've got to write this thing. No man can see the kingdom of God, says Jesus, until he's born again. It's the work of the Spirit that causes us to see. I've got things out of balance. 
I must call back and rearrange and pull forth. God is the center of the universe. I'm a creature just like you. I revolve around God. God doesn't revolve around me. I revolve around Him. I love the thought of this woman searching for her coin. It comforts me to think of her pulling up her skirt, getting her sleeves tied back so they wouldn't bother, and going to work. Jesus says, I have finished the work that you gave me to do. It was work. He did the work that the Father sent him to do. And while he was on Calvary, if you will allow me the illustration, the dust was flying. For the coin that was lost, the provision for finding it was there, the light of the Holy Spirit. God searched us out. God searched us out. The, the illusion is this. She took that now. She didn't just hold it up and peer around. She looked in the corners and she picked up the mats and she moved the table and she lifted the straw. She took the candle and she moved it all the way around the edges of anything where that coin might have gotten caught. She looked diligently. She worked hard at it. It wasn't a casual catch as catch can. She went after it. God didn't say, well, now, come on, all of you that want to, God, I'll take you. Who comes, I'll see what I wind up with. No, indeed. He went out looking for us. He searched us down. It says in Psalms 23 that goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life. One man likens goodness and mercy to the sheepdogs of the shepherd who constantly nip at our heels, keeping us in where goodness and mercy will drive us to the Lord. Well, God came out. And the Holy Ghost searched us in the dens of depravity and wickedness, caught between the cracks of circumstances in life, caught where we could not be free. We could not bump ourselves loose or get ourselves loose, and we could not be brought out by anything except the hand of the woman who was searching. And he found us, brought us out brought us and what did he do did he throw us in a drawer and slam it on us and say well you'll know where you are now no indeed not he stitched us up across his forehead he placed us as his adornment he put us where the light would catch our reflection as we moved he put us where everybody would see us he put us where he would be comforted by the sound of our brushing close together he put us in our rightful position by Him. We are seated in heavenly places, lifted up in Jesus and seated before all of the universe as the ones who gather the universe together and call everything into the praise of the Most High God. He searched us out, found us where we were, and set us in a place of prominence so all the universe could see and admire. That's what our God has done for us. And when she got through she threw a party. Oh, she threw a party. She said, I've lost my coin, but I found it. Come on in. Don't bring a covered dish. I've got plenty in the fridge. I'll feed everybody. Come on in. It's going to be a party. She broke open the best bottles of wine. She combed her hair out. She put a little perfume on. She put some festoons around. She invited her friends and neighbors and said, Rejoice with me. I found the coin. And everybody was so another party. Another party at which she made all the provisions, she threw the party. We're finding a picture of God, the dancing God, the celebrating Lord over the finding of what belonged to him. Now let's look at the last one. This is so often called the prodigal son, but really it's not the story of the son. 
It's the story of the father. And in this parable, we see the father. We have looked at the son. We've looked at the Holy Spirit. And now we see the father and see the father's heart. You're well familiar with the story. We won't read it. You know the son came to the father and he said, Father, give me my share of this state that falls to me. And uh, the son wasn't wise asking for his money, but the father was wise. He gave him his freedom. You know, it's wisdom to give folks liberty to make mistakes. God, it seems, took an awful chance in the Garden of Eden when he gave Adam his liberty. He gave him the opportunity to choose. Now, he didn't have to do that. He could have compelled Adam to obey. But Adam needed that freedom in order to celebrate his humanity. For if he doesn't have the freedom of choice, he isn't human. You see, choice is what makes us human. We must choose. The scripture says, choose you this day whom you will serve. The choice is always there. The son made his choice to leave, and God, or rather the father, allowed him to make his choice. He knew what was going to happen. The old man was no fool. He knew the boy was going to squander what he had, just like Adam squandered the preciousness of the dominion of the whole earth. He squandered it. God knew he was going to do that, friends. The father didn't catch God by surprise. He decreed that he would permit sin. He didn't allow it. That means it you know, happened and he didn't know what else to do, so he did the best he could. No, no, he decreed he would permit it. It was a decree. He would permit it. It would be. He decreed it so. Allowed Adam his freedom, knowing that Adam would sin. That's why the scripture says Jesus was the, the lamb slain from before the foundation of the world. He was your savior before he was your creator. Now, the man knows that his son is going to fall on hard times, and he knows that he's going to suffer because of it. Because when your kids suffer, you suffer. I don't know if your children have ever done much suffering, but if they have, you'll know it nearly kills you. You suffer twice as bad as they do because you suffer their suffering and you suffer yours too. And so the old man knew that it was going to be a suffering on him. He knew that it was going to cost him. God knew, friends, that it was going to cost him when he gave Adam his liberty to choose. He was fully cognizant of all of the suffering that he would bear on Calvary. He knew what it was going to cost. And he could have prevented it if he wanted to. But this he chose to do it this way. This is the best way. For he is good and can make nothing but good choices. And God chose it this way. So of all, of all the alternatives that God might have had, this is the best way. I know that because I know the character of God. So the old man gives the boy his inheritance. Now the son didn't care anything about the father. Else he wouldn't have left. He didn't care anything about the inheritance either. He wanted it for himself and to spend it for his own good time. And so he left. You know the story. He goes and he spends everything on harlots and wine and women and free living and good times. And when the money was gone, so were the friends and the women. And he couldn't get a job. It was a, a real depression there. And the economic situation was bluck. It was a famine. And uh, he couldn't get a job. And so it says that he joined himself to a citizen of that nation. King James says. Now, love always sets limits for us. Limits are always the mark of love. The Ten Commandments are God's love limits. It says, don't go beyond this. There's death out there. But this boy jumped the limits. He said, I must have my freedom. And he left 
the safety of love. And he did find his freedom, but with his freedom he found the death that went around with it. Now, man, in his bullheaded demand to have his own way, man has taken himself prisoner. He has taken himself prisoner. Look what he said over in Psalms 2. This is the classic, the classic word on this entire circumstance. Psalms 2 said, Why are the nations in an uproar and the peoples devising a vain thing? The kings of the earth take their stand and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed. Let us tear their fetters apart and cast away their cards from us, they say. We don't want God's laws. God's an old fuddy-duddy. I must have it my own way. I must have my freedom, says Adam. Well, I'll be a God just like God. I'll know good and evil. I don't need God. I don't like the limits. God's wanting to be mean to me. He wants to rob me and take away all the fun things of life. That's what man says. And in his stupidity, man has taken himself captive and entangled himself in the web of his own sin. Now, you'll find this is a basic truth that men don't like God. It says in Romans, they did not like to retain God in their knowledge because men are sure that God is mean and God is angry and they don't like that. You ask somebody, would you like to go to heaven when you die? They say, oh yeah. Well, you find out what they think heaven is. They don't want to go to what you think is heaven. They don't want to be in the presence of God. Well, that's hell to them. They've been running from God all their life. They want to go where you can sit around and do what you want. You know, heard people say, go to hell and we'll sit on the griddle and swap stories. It isn't going to be like that, friend. It isn't going to be like that at all because God's there. And his presence in hell is what makes it hell. And therefore, men say, I want to go to heaven, but I, uh, find out what heaven is first. Men don't like to retain the knowledge of God because of their nature. Well, this boy left, and it says that he got so low that he hired out to a swine farmer, pig farmer, and didn't have anything to eat, and he was going to eat the husk that the pigs eat. You know pigs will eat anything? You know, I mean, honey, I mean anything. Pigs will eat it. They're, they're nasty beasts. Pigs, pigs will eat anything. And this boy was ready to eat whatever the pigs were eating. And it says he came to himself. You see, up until now, he wasn't himself. Before you met Jesus, you weren't yourself. It's only in the Holy Ghost that you find yourself and become who you really are. Everybody else is not who they are, what they were designed to be. They are the prostitution of what God created to be. They are the, the twisted caricature of what God created. And it's only when the Spirit of God draws you that you come to yourself. He said he was in the middle of the pig pen, fixing to stuff his mouth with what the pigs ate, and he came to himself. And he said, What am I doing? He came to his senses and he says, how many of my father's hired men have more than enough bread and I'm dying with hunger? I'll get up and go to my father. King James says, I will arise and go to my father. There's an old song we used to sing. I will arise and go to Jesus. He will comfort me from my sin. 
and said, I will arise. Friend, you've got to say, I will. And it's not enough that God has done all the provision. I know it's all of God. I know He predestinated us. I know He chose us. But you've got to say, I will. I choose. But it's only when you come to yourself that you can say, I will, friends. He could never say, I will, go to my Father, until He came to His senses. And it's only when the Spirit of the Lord draws you and turns on the light that you can say, I will go to God. He's already got you when you say, I will. By the time you say, I will, it's because He gave you the grace to say, I will. You'd never say, I will, unless the grace He gave you. So it's all of God, start and finish. He said, I will arise and go to my Father. Had to come to Himself. He said, you know, I realize this sin is against my Father. Father, I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Now, you just take me in and make me like one of your hired servants and I'll serve you. He realized that his sin in leaving home was against his father. And that is the essence of sin. And until you realize that all sin is directly against God, you will never be convicted of it. It will be just a small thing. But, friends, sin is against God. It is an insult to his being. Every area of sin, sin insults every one of God's attributes. The scripture says, we have, David said, we have, I have done this evil in thy sight. You see, God is omnipresent. Sin says, God doesn't exist. He can't see me. We've done it in his sight. It's, we've ignored him. And my children will at least go around the corner to do what I tell them not to do. But if they sit right in front of me and are so full of revolting and insults to me that they'll even sin in front of my eyes, that says I don't exist. That denies my very existence. Sin says I am God. You don't exist. I'll do it. It's in your sight. Do you see the horror of sin? I've learned uh, about coming to the senses to pray 2 Timothy 2.26 over my children that they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil, having been held captive by him to do his will. Coming to our senses and knowing that sin is against God, that he is the one who has been insulted. You see, God is faithful. Sin says, you will fail me, I'll have to do it for myself. God is not faithful. It's a denial of everything that God is. And it's only when you come to yourself that you can see this thing. Sin is directly against God. And as long as you think you're sinning against your fellow man, until you realize it's against God, you will never recognize it in its true import. The horror of sin is not that you will be punished for it, but it's that it's against God. God has been insulted. The horror of sin is not I will receive retribution, but it is my God's holiness has been insulted and, and besmeared before the names uh, before the eyes of men. The name of my God has been insulted by my actions. The Bible says that we are characterized, we who are born again, by grieving over sin. We mourn over sin, it says in Matthew 5. And the reason we mourn over sin, it kills us because it is against our God. It's not that what might happen to us, we might get punished because we do it, but it's because it's against my God. Now, there was a time in my growth when I was trained by my parents and the reason I didn't do certain things is because I knew I'd be taken to the woodshed and uh, when you're taken to Charles Harold's woodshed you don't want to go more than one or two times 
And I've been, I thought, my quota. And so I would obey my parents because I knew I'd get a licking if I didn't. My daddy did most of all of his correcting with this finger right here. Believe me, it didn't take any more than that. And we happened to be out someplace. It got to where he didn't have to do that. He'd take that old long bony finger and he'd point it at me and I knew the next stop was the hospital. That's, there was no reprieve. That was it. And then he'd, he could just look at me like this. I could do that with my children, just look at them. And they knew it's up. The it's next stop is the funeral home. Get right. And so it is that with just a look. But the time has come, you see, when I'm a woman, grown now and matured, and I wouldn't disobey my parents now, not because they might whip me, but because of my respect for them. It would grieve me to know I had so insulted my parents as to do something that they had told me not to do. I honor them now because of who they are, not because of what they might do to me. Now, friends, sin needs to be grieved over and repented of, not because of what might happen to us, but because of the insult to our God. So he came to himself. He said, I'm going to go home. And he picked up and he started. Now, this story, understand, is not the story of the son. I've told you this about the son to get it in context so you can understand the father. All the time this boy's been out there, the father's been watching. You know he has been because it says while he was, when he came to his father, while he was a yet a long way off, his father saw him. He's obviously watching the road. He obviously was looking and longing for that son. All the time this boy's been gone, the Lord, uh, rather the father, has been in desire to see that boy. His heart has been reaching out to him, reaching out to him, reaching out to him. And the father saw him a long way off. And it says, the father ran to meet him. Now, friends, you didn't drag up into God's presence and beg to be forgiven of your sins. He ran to get you. He wanted you a lot more than you wanted him. I mean, this, this one says that he cometh us. It says, he that cometh to me, I will in no wise cast out. This one jumps up and runs to meet you. It's like the daddy playing hide-and-go-seat with a little boy, and the daddy's behind the door, and the little kid's looking, and daddy jumps out and says, I got you. Oh, that's the way it is with us. We start looking for God, and he jumps out and says, I got you. Mm-hmm. You don't have to hunt him down, friends. Mm-hmm. He finds you. And the father ran to meet him. And it says he kissed him. Now, that sounds so sedate. That sounds so King James. He kissed him. But it doesn't mean that. It means he kissed him, and he kissed him, and he kissed him, and he hugged him, and he squeezed him, and he danced around him, and he turned him around, and he lifted him off his feet, and he kissed him on this cheek, and he kissed him on that cheek, and he said, Hallelujah, my son is back home, and he kissed him, and he kissed him, and he kissed him. It's over and over and over again. He caused a scene, as my kids say. He really caused a scene because his son was back. Now, understand this. The whole time, the stench of the pig pen was on him. To a Jew, that was the most despicable thing in this world was a pig pen. And the stench of sin did not deter the father from embracing his son because, you see, he knew who his son was. Our God knew who he created us to be. He knows us and he loves us. He says he kissed him and he kissed him. He says he felt compassion for him. Hebrews 4.15 says that we don't have a high priest that can't be touched with the feelings of our infirmities, but he was in all points tempted like we are. Our God's compassions, King James says, are kindled. I love that. His kindle, I can look at a flame burning. He had compassion. He knew, see, this father knew what it was like to be a boy. He knew what it was like to make a big mistake. 
He knew what it was like to feel low. He knew what it was like to feel that you had lost everything because he had been a boy himself once. Our God knows what it feels like to be human, for he is human. He knows what it's like. He came and became one of us and took on himself the nature of man. And he has lived as a man and he knows. He's endured everything that we've endured. He's faced every temptation and he has chosen not to sin. He knows he is a man. He is touched by the feelings of our infirmities. That, that ministers to me. He knows what it's like to be depressed. He said in Gethsemane, my soul is exceedingly sorrowful even to death. He knows what it's like to be tired. He knows what it's like to be, to be lonely. For when he was at the heights of his popularity, he was the least understood. He knows what it's like to have friends that you really thought you could count on desert you. He knows what it's like to be misunderstood. Mm -hmm. He knows what it's like to be talked about. He knows what it's like to be in need. He knows what it's like to go around with not a penny in your pocket, but dependent on God to make supply and to receive that supply. He knows what it's like to live as we live. He can be touched. And this father knew what it was like to be a boy. He knew the hopeless, desperate situation the boy was in. And he knew it not by mind, but he knew it by heart. He said he, he kissed him. And look what it says. He had compassion for him and embraced him and kissed him. And look, turn, if you will, to Ephesians 1. Ephesians 1 talks about God lavishing us. Now, this father is fixing to dress this boy up. He's going to put a robe on him. He's going to put a ring on him. He's going to put shoes on him. He is going to be lavish. You know, he didn't have to do that. Now, he didn't take him home and dress him up, friends. He did it right there on the spot. He says that, uh, in Ephesians 1, well, Ephesians 1, 8, yeah, back up to 7. In him, that's in the beloved Jesus, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished on us, period. Then begins the next sentence. In all wisdom and insight, he's made known to us the mystery of his will. Da, 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 da. No, no. It's a period. He lavished on us. What did he lavish on us? Forgiveness. We have forgiveness which he lavished on us. God is not stingy. He doesn't forgive you just a little bit. God is the eternal forgiver. He delights in forgiveness. He forgives you more than enough. The old Puritan said, the plaster is bigger than the wound. In other words, the band-aid's bigger than the bobo. He gives plenty too much, they say in pigeoning. It's just far too much. He, he, he wastes himself on you. He just pours himself upon you. And this father lavished on the son. He said, now, son, I don't want you to walk through town in your condition. When you go through town and the neighbors see you, I want them to see you as you are, my son. So he put a... Said, Servants bring a robe, and he dressed him in a robe. Our God has clothed us in the righteousness of Jesus Christ. He has dressed us, and we face all of the universe clothed in the righteousness of Jesus. And then he said, get a ring and put it on his finger. I used to wonder, well, why did he put a ring on his finger? You see, the ring was the Near Eastern credit card. When you went shopping, you sealed 
and marked what you bought with the imprint of your ring. When you mailed a letter, you sealed it. It's authentic. It has a ring. Have you ever bought something that had the U.S. government stamp said this is the real thing? A stamp means it's sealed. God has sealed us, friends, with the Holy Spirit of promise. We have been sealed. It says, see me for this account. Our Lord has said, you have my charge card. You can put anything you want to on the account. I'll pay it. It's got my charge plate. So he gave his ring. He said, I want you to walk through town clothes so they'll know by your attire who you are. And you don't have to go into the grocery store and say, well, I'd like to buy a little something. Uh, Would you, um, could I hold off till Thursday? No, no, son. I want you to know that everything I have is yours. My whole bank account is open to you. Here's my credit card. You can go get whatever you want. You don't have to be afraid and beg and whine. You have my credit card. And so God has given us the seal of the Holy Spirit, which says he shall supply all my needs. All of the riches of God are mine, and the Spirit of God makes them real to me. He brings them into actuality. And then it says, he puts shoes on his feet. No slave wore shoes. No slave wore shoes. Don't you remember the old gospel song, uh, I'll go, uh, go to heaven, walk on God's golden go get my go, going to put on my shoes and walk all over God's heaven? Because slaves didn't get shoes. But this one says, put shoes on his feet. Let everybody know this is the son. This is no slave. We, don't, um, we are not the slaves of God. We are his children, his sons, members of the family. We eat at the first table. We don't have to wait for seconds. We eat at the first table. And we are his children. He has shod us with the preparation of the gospel of peace. How beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of those that publish good tidings, that say, your God reigns. He has shod our feet. We are not slaves of God. We are his sons. We have his credit card. We are clothed in garments of righteousness, and we are his by the marks that he has put upon us, by all that he has brought us into. Now, he didn't have to do all that. It's been enough just not to send us to hell. But he brought us in and sat us down at his firstborn son's. Now, you'll notice that's not the end of the story. The father is delighted. He throws a party. He kills the fatted calf. I mean, it was the, it, he reached, today we'd gone into the freezer and got out that turkey we'd been saving for Christmas. I mean, he got the best cut in the place. It was the fatted calf, the one he saved for a special occasion. And he threw a party. He invited everybody in and says, come and see. Do you notice that the shepherd, when he found his sheet, invited all his yes, friends in? The woman, when she found her coin, invited all her friends in? And the father, when his son was found, brought all his friends in? God calls the universe. He says, come and see. Turn, if you will, over into Ephesians. Oh, this is rich, rich here. In Ephesians chapter 3, and we're going to have to, I'm not going to go back to the beginning of the sentence. It's about three or five, five verses up. But look break in in the middle of verse 9 where it says God who created all things in verse 10 chapter 3 of Ephesians in order that the manifold wisdom of God might now 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 be made known through the church to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places and this was in accordance with his eternal purpose which he wrought in Christ when he raised him from the dead the father says I call all of hell to witness I call all of heaven to witness I speak to the universe look at my church 
We are the showcase of God's wisdom. We are that which he shows forth himself into the world. You want to know what God is like, universe? Look at the church. You want to know what Father is like? Look at the church. We are the reflection of the glory of our God. Our purpose is to show our God to all the universe. We're to gather the universe up and to lead them in a great choir of praise to God. It's our purpose. We are to do that. It wasn't angels that he's showing himself through. It's the church. Oh, the purchase of the church and the glory of the God that we serve in the church is beyond our comprehension. We are the people of God. The reason for everything is the church. Everything is summed up in the church. And there is no any other thing other than the church. This is God's first and last plan it is what god is about and it says that he called everybody in and threw a party and the elder brother remember this started out saying that those men had two sons well this elder brother was out working in the field toiling with the perspiration flowing from his body and he heard all the racket up to the house so he threw his hoe down and walked on up to see what was going on and when he got up there, they were having a big spread. I mean, people laughing and talking, and the neighbors were there. They were making homemade ice cream. And he walked up, and he asked one of the servants, he said, uh, Hey, what's going on in there? They said, Oh, you'll be so pleased to know that your brother has come home. And his face was covered and contorted with anger. That fool has showed up again said it made him angry he became incised with anger and look what he said he wasn't willing to go in he wouldn't even go in the house he wouldn't even show proper manners his father came out to him and began to beg him and said come on in he, and he said all these years 40 years I've been serving you. I never once did what you told me not to do. I labored and broke my back making this place run and go. And when that idiot brother of mine left, I thought at least I'd have something in this life. And you let him crawl back in here and pick up right where he left off? I won't have any part of that. You never threw a party for me. And the father said, well, son, I don't understand. Didn't you know everything I've got is yours? You could have had a party any time you wanted to. All you had to do was just ask. It's all yours. Everything I have is yours. The elder brother locked himself out of the banqueting hall and refused to turn the key to get back in and the key was forgiveness and love the father knew love he delights in forgiveness but not this elder brother he had never loved the father the only reason he didn't leave was he was looking after number one he was saving his skin so many are serving God working hard but they don't love God they're sticking up for number one They're working to keep themselves out of hell. Mm -hmm. They could care less about God's honor being insulted. They don't want to go to hell. 
So they think if they do all these works, that the good works will outweigh the bad works, and they won't have to suffer. And all of their emphasis is on themselves. Their heart isn't concerned with the Father, and they know nothing of forgiveness because they have never experienced it themselves. Jesus told us, well, one time he went to a party, a man named Simon gave, and uh, there was a woman that came in who was a notorious woman. She was um, a sinner, a noted sinner, so she was probably a prostitute. And remember it says that he came in and sat down, and you know they reclined, and, and she began to wash his feet with her tears, and they had kept little tear bottles. I used to think she was crying. That'd take a bunch of boo-hoo, and, and she may have been doing it. I don't know, but I know they had these little tear bottles, and they, uh, if they were wealthy. It was an expensive bottle. If they were poor, it was a little earthen flask, but everybody kept it, and it was buried with them. It was very precious, and at weddings and funerals and everything, uh, Hebrews are very emotional. They'd go around and catch the tears in those little bo- bottles, and that was the distilled joy and grief of their entire lifetime in that little bottle. And this woman took her precious, precious tear bottle that she would want buried with her, it was so precious, and she washed his feet with the distilled joy and sorrow of her entire life. She washed his feet. And then she took her, undid her long hair and dried it. You know, it says a woman's hair is her glory. She dried his feet with her glory. And while he was sitting there, Simon was watching it going on. He wasn't going to say anything, but he was thinking to himself, this man was such a hotshot preacher. He says he is a prophet. If he didn't know what kind of woman that is, he wouldn't even let her touch him. And Jesus didn't jump up and begin to preach. He says, uh, hey, Simon, I've got something to tell you. And Simon says, yes, sir, Lord, just go ahead. Take your, take your liberty and tell me. And Jesus said there was this man that uh, owed a great debt. And the man he owed it to him forgave him. And there was another man that owed a little debt, and he forgave him that too. Which one do you think loved the, the one that owed the debt to the most? And Simon said, well, I guess the one he owed the most money. And the Lord said, that's right. He said, Simon, see that woman over there? He said, she has begun forgiven much because she loves much. Some are forgiven little because they love little. It gives you a real insight to how much forgiveness you have received to how much forgiveness you're able to give. A real insight. For once you've seen, I've been forgiven. Look at the magnitude. I owed a debt I couldn't pay. Man, if I had 50 lifetimes, I, I could never pay God. It was impossible. I have been forgiven. I must celebrate the fact that I've been forgiven. I have so received so much forgiveness. I've got forgiveness to let. You sin against me? That's all right. This one's on me. I pay. I just forgive. I forgive. I must forgive because I have been forgiven. God is the eternal forgiver, and we are his children just like him, and we forgive. We forgive. Peter said, Lord, hmm, watch this, Lord. Lord, how many times should I forgive my brother? Seven times? And the Lord said, well, I believe you'd be better off to forgive him 70 times 7. 70 times 7? You see, what will happen is you forgive him all those times and you keep count. And just before the last time that you, this is his last forgiveness, 
you forget where you were. You have to start all over at one, <laughs> two. And, you know, he said, just, you, there's no way to limit it. You just keep on forgiving. God, the great forgiver, has birthed forgiving sons into the kingdom. And unforgiveness is a mark of the devil. Yes. Yes. We must forgive. Amen. because Not because it's required of us, but because of who we are. Yes. Who we are. No we are the forgiver. Yes. No matter how right we were or how wrong they were. It pays no part in it. We are the forgivers. God loves not because we are lovely or have done something to motivate him to love us, but because he is love. We forgive even when our forgiveness isn't sought because we are forgivers. It's our nature. It is our nature. Uh, It's not because we are motivated from the outside. It's not because they are worth it. It's because it's our nature. Uh, We we feed, we preach the gospel. We forgive unto God. We don't forgive just because it's received. We forgive unto God. Hallelujah, I forgive you. You don't want it too bad. Unto God, I forgive you. Uh, I, I come here and I teach every week. Unto God. I've had to learn this, and it's been a bitter lesson. That I have to teach unto God, because you see, it's not always well received. I don't always have groups that sit here and smile at me like you do. That isn't always the case. And I have to teach what God tells me to teach and preach what he says to preach unto him, regardless of how it's received. You see, remember when... Uh, uh, Jesus talked to Peter. He said, Simon, do you love me? And uh, Peter said, yes, Lord. He said, feed my sheep. He asked him that three times. Do you love me? Yes, Lord. Feed my sheep. Do you love me? You know I love you, Lord. Feed my sheep. You see, Jesus said, if you love me, feed the sheep. If you love me, forgive. Not, he didn't say, if the sheep are, are hungry, feed them. He didn't say, if the sheep are appreciative, feed them. He didn't even say, if you like sheep, feed them. He said, if you love me, feed them. He didn't say, if they want to be forgiven, forgive them. He didn't say, if they'll receive your forgiveness, forgive them. He didn't even say, if you want, if you like them. He said, if you love me, that's our motivation. And it's because we love him, it's because of who we are that we forgive. We are motivated. And this elder son did not show the characteristics of a child of God. He had stuck around and worked for the old man for what he could get out of it. And so many people have done the very same thing. Remember the Laodicean church? Jesus said, you're neither hot nor cold, so I'll feed you out. He had excommunicated the whole church, just the whole business. He said, now if there's anybody in there that's got their ears on, come on out here with me and we'll have church. But I'm not going in there. Now, their, their sin was not, it wasn't their sin that he was so uh, incised about. It was their satisfied condition in their state. They didn't think they had any sin. And Jesus said, I spit y'all out. I just excommunicate the whole church. He that has ears to hear, let him hear. He says, if you got in there and you can hear me, that means you've been birthed by the, by the Spirit of God because you got ears to hear. If you've got any ears, if there's any of my folk in there, get out and come on and we'll sit down here by the side of the road and we'll have church together. I'll preach and you can pray. We'll just have church. The Lord says, if you have ears, but if you don't have ears to hear, you see, you're perfectly satisfied. You don't think you have any need. Think you have any need. You have to see the condition 
And the seeing of the condition is the work of the Holy Spirit. So all three wind up with a party. And he threw his party again. Friends, ever since I came into the revelation of the person of my God in the small degree that I see, and it is small, that's no powerful remark, it is small. The greatest anybody sees is small. Ever since I came into the knowledge of who I am in Jesus, it's been party time. Yeah. It's wonderful. It's glorious. Yeah. I hoop and holler and shout. Have you ever seen people at a party? You know, they come in, they're glad to be there. They got a little bottle of wine for the hostess and they're eating little cheese and crackers and having a good time and taking little drinks and pretty soon they begin to feel real good. And first thing you know, they are feeling beyond good. First thing they put a lampshade on their head and you know, that, the life of the party. Well, you wait till you get to some of these parties at some of those whole and you'll see people doing the most ridiculous things. They're hopping up and down and they're shouting and clapping their hands and shouting. They are so inebriated with the wine of the Spirit, the new wine of the Holy Ghost. They are drunk with the Holy Ghost. And those who are not so party-minded sit on the outside and they say, My, how undignified. The only people who complain about a drunk are those who aren't drunk. (laughs) If you get drunk, you'd think it was wonderful, you know? (laughs) Right? Well, the party is on, friends. The party is on, and the wine is flowing full and free. There is meat and drink in the kingdom. There's plenty of food, and there's plenty to drink. And the Lord said, now don't get drunk with wine, oh, bottled wine, get drunk with the Spirit. Yes. Perfectly all right to be drunk, it just depends on what you're drunk from. Yes. He said, be drunk with the revelation of the Holy Ghost pouring and flowing through you. And put on your party hats and toot your horns, it's all right. Perfectly all right. Throw a little, shake your tambourine and throw a little confetti. You know, the only people that don't get excited at the ball game are those that don't understand the rules. Hello. The only people that don't get excited in church are those that don't understand what's going on. They don't know how to play. They don't understand the rules. They need to get the book and read a little bit and get in on the game, and they could get excited too. When the rest of us stand up and say, Yay, team, they think, Oh, my goodness. Uh-huh. Oh, it has been party time ever since. And the wine flows. And this party can only get bigger and better. This is the foyer to the ballroom that is before us. And believe me, the, the foyer isn't chopped liver. It's terrific. We are being escorted in. And we are learning how to party right here. And the Lord has shown us in these three uh, parables something of what he is like. The son parable comes first. Jesus is always first. He is highly exalted. The Spirit of God does his work in the heart of a man. And then we come into the place where we can learn what the Father is like. The Father, the source of all things. The Son, the Spirit, and the Father. And in the first parable, we saw the work of Jesus. He's the way. The way into the Father's presence. He says, no one comes to the Father but by me. And in the second one, we saw the Holy Spirit. He's the truth. 
for he is the revealer of truth. And in the last one, we saw the Father. He is the source of all things. He is life. We see the way. We see the truth. We see the life. In three parables, the working of the Godhead in bringing back to himself all that belongs to him. And he is to be highly exalted for he himself is worthy of all that he has created. He himself is desirous of revealing himself through us in order that the whole universe can stand to its feet and join in that great anthems of praise and blessing to its name. Father, we adore and worship you, Holy One. Jesus, I love the way that you preach. Your stories exhibit the truth in such few words. When you said something, Lord, you said a mouthful. It didn't take you a lot of words to say things. You said it simply and sweetly. But the depth, the uncharted depths that are in those few spoken words causes our eyes to spin and our ears to ring and we lose our balance. Oh, and we fall down into the waiting arms of our God and are cradled closely and softly by you. Blessed be your holy name, my God. You are the truth. You are the way. You are the life. You have settled everything, and it is so because of the word of your mouth. Your word is going forth from you, and your word is producing what you sent it to do. And it's bringing it about in our lives, in the lives of others. Oh, lift our faces, Lord. Lift our countenance so that we can see the vast move and sweep of our God in time. Let us not be caught up with the little tiddly-diddly makings of our own circumstances, but let us see the hand of our God in the big scope of time. Let us see what you are doing. Let us see what you are doing in our life, and let us see what you are doing in the church. Oh, my God, thank you, thank you that you brought back to yourself what belonged to you. Thank you that you went, Lord, and dug me out of a deep pit and picked me up and set me on solid ground and brought me to yourself and then pitched a big blowout just to celebrate what you had done. Oh, Lord, I join you in your celebration. You are the singing, dancing, celebrating God. The life of the party is my Father. Praise to the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Let all that hath breath bless and praise his precious, precious being. For there is none more worthy, there is none more deserving than this one whose name is the Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed be your dear name. Praise to you, Jesus.